0: Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks Justice for All. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher.
1: I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from our
0: Chicago teachers. I am your co-host Andrea Parker, and I'm joined with
1: your other co-host Jim Staros.
0: Awesome, and we're here to talk about a. Very interesting topic. You know, we as teachers, we do not only teach content, but we teach our students advocacy. We are here to change lives. And these two educators that we're going to talk to have been in the headlines in Chicago for quite some time because they were advocating for their students. And not only they were advocating for their students, they taught their students how to advocate for themselves. And because a lot of times our good work does not go unpunished. <laughs> In CPS, these teachers were retaliated against because of their efforts. Jim, what happened?
1: Well, these two teachers down at George Washington High School were advocating to stop the construction of General Iron down on the southeast side.
0: And what is General Iron? General Iron, thanks Ms.
1: Parker. General Iron is a company that does metal shredding and recycling. And the reason that's a problem is it, it, it creates a lot of pollutants and toxins in the air. And the southeast side of the city is already rampant with that stuff. And of course, they decided to move it into an area which is already underserved and, and underprotected by the city. Um, these people are already at risk in that neighborhood. Um, they tend to be lower income. And these two teachers were advocating to get this not put there. So, as to not further poison their communities and their students. And one of the phrases I love that they had pointed out to me before uh, the interview was that water and air are a part of the learning conditions of their community. That is an important thing to keep in mind as we're going through this, because some people are like, you know, why why are teachers complaining about an iron plant? That doesn't seem much education, right? But education is all about the community. And if the community we live in is poisonous, we can't really educate the kids and we can't protect our communities.
0: No, we can't. And as you um, talked about how it was proposed by the city to bring the business over to a community next to George Washington High School. However, it's been in the Lincoln Park area for decades. And why is it being removed from that place as it's constantly Um, becoming more and more expensive to live there. And those residents in Lincoln Park were complaining about the company being there and they were worried about their health conditions. And the answer the city proposed is to put it in another neighborhood near a high school in that community, uh, again, predominantly people of color where their health is not as a concern as those in Lincoln Park.
1: Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Like, you know, the, the residents in Lincoln Park were not wrong by saying that this this company is creating health hazards. But the solution to it was to move it from a wealthy part of the city to a poorer part of the city. So as long as apparently, as long as we're poisoning poorer residents of the city, that's okay. Right. You know, and and the funny thing is the city argued that it's much safer. We we made it much less toxic. Well, then why not leave it where it was? Correct. Right. But no, no, we can't have that because that land is worth way too much money to Lincoln Yards to develop. And as some of our our regular listeners will remember, this is some of the issues that we had brought up before with the TIF funding here in the city, where, you know, billions of dollars were being funneled to Lincoln Yards to actually develop this neighborhood. And as part of that, the city promised to remove this large uh, corporation from there so that they had land to develop.
0: That's great background for our listeners. And so without any further ado, let's get to this interview where our guests tell us how they were able to not only advocate for their students and their families, but also be able to escape the wrath of CBS for all their hard work.
1: That's right. Here we go. So we're back with our two guests today, Chuck Stark from Washington High School, science teacher, and Lauren Bianchi, also from Washington High School, who is a history teacher. How are you guys doing today? Doing well,
2: thank you.
3: Also doing pretty well, just uh, recovering from a nasty bout with COVID. Oh, Um, no. First time, don't recommend it.
1: All right. (laughs) We'll we'll keep that in mind. COVID, a thumbs down from Lauren. That's, That's what we've got so far.
0: Thank you all for being here today. And I'm so sorry you have my empathy and my sympathy, Lauren, for your battle with COVID. But again, because you have been through an even bigger battle, I would say, um, with CPS, I know that COVID probably will Doesn't be less. Doesn't stand a chance. That's right. Doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. There you so go. Can you all talk about the campaign to keep General Iron from moving to the southeast side? And why did the city want to relocate General Iron in the first place?
2: You know, this, this goes, this obviously goes, goes way back. I think many people know that uh, general iron was operating up on the North branch of the Chicago river in Lincoln mm-hmm. park. Right. Okay. Over time, Lincoln park has, has drastically changed um, demographics. And as it's been changing demographics, it's become an area that has become uh, much more white, much more wealthy and a lot of the industry from what used to be an industrial corridor um, had been gradually moving out over the years. And one of the last strongholds of that industrial corridor was General Iron. Eventually the the residents of the the neighborhood pushed enough and then the large development Lincoln Yards finally sealed the deal saying, this has got to go. This doesn't fit with what we want this neighborhood to look like. Um, Where else can it go? And the city underneath the administration of Rahm Emanuel helped broker a deal uh, to move it and sell it to RMG, which uh, is located right across the street from George Washington High School. That move was brokered by the Emanuel administration, um, but it was signed, sealed and delivered by the Lightfoot administration. They actually signed a document saying that the city would do whatever was within their power to facilitate the move. Um, So let's get it out of this area. Um, where we want fancy development, let's move it down here where there's already lots of industry. It doesn't hurt to have another one over here.
0: So, really quickly, how long was General Iron in the Lincoln Park neighborhood? And what was their rationale of getting it out? Was it, it wasn't for safety or health reasons, just because we want to do more development?
2: Both of those reasons. I think it's, I, I don't know how long it's been there. So, Lauren, if you know an exact number, but I want to say 50 years, 70 years.
3: Um, it's 40 or 50 years. It's been a long
2: time. Let's
0: just say decades. Yeah. Several generations. Right. And so all of a sudden let's move it now. after thought all these generations of it being stationary.
2: Yeah. It's it's why they were moving it out. The land they were on was worth millions of dollars. So the city wanted that um, the Lincoln Yards development that the city gave uh, over a billion dollars in tax credit to wanted it gone. And neighbors were saying this isn't good for our health. And they were probably right. It's not good for their health.
0: But it's good for the African-Americans' health. Well, that's,
2: that's
1: how they wanted it. to put it. They it, move it
0: yeah. over okay, and the people of color over here, so it's okay for our health. Okay, yeah.
2: And I don't know how, <laughs> how relevant this is to our current story, but, um, you know, they, of course, they don't put it in those terms, um, but they say, look, yeah, we know that old facility was bad, but this new one we're building here um, in this predominantly uh, black and brown community, it's going to be better. You know, stop complaining. It's better than what the old one was.
1: Oh, that's nice. So it'll just kill you slower. And, and I, we, we actually talked about this, the uh, one of our earliest episodes on the TIFFs. Remember that, uh, Ms. Parker, when we were with uh, Ben Jarofsky over at his studio? It was unforgettable. I know, it was, but it seems like a million years ago and just like yesterday, we were talking about tackling TIFFs and how that uh, candidate Lightfoot said she would never do something like that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all of a sudden, she's the mayor and, you know, how things change.
0: Yeah. priorities change when you're a candidate versus the actual mayor.
1: That's right. Now, I mean, ultimately, that General Irons attempt to open up on the southeast side ended up failing. But maybe you can talk a little bit about how we got to that point of the win. I know there were protests. There were all kinds of different issues that were going on. Uh, Different government agencies got involved. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so I can jump in here. And I will say that, I mean, the Southeast side, the unity that people were able to build when it comes to this issue, you know, teachers, myself and Chuck were just a small part of that. Um, This was an effort led by longstanding environmental justice groups, like the Southeast Environmental Task Force, um, other community organizations, and then Uh, We just really were able to build a coalition that brought together teachers, parents, students, community members, and those existing environmental justice organizations. And I think that, like, this was just a huge learning experience for all of us in terms of what it means to, like, be in coalition with people who don't normally work together, don't normally talk about how our lives and the conditions of our our day-to-day lives are actually very connected. Let's also just be clear that the whole time we thought we were going to lose because there really aren't very many precedents for uh, a city government, state government, any government at any level siding with the community over the interests of industry and profit.
0: But we make precedents at CTU.
3: We (laughs) set
0: precedent. And I like that you said that you thought that you weren't going to win, but I just love that are for our listeners, the power that their teachers have, and I've said this before, to be a teacher is to be an advocate. There's just no other way. You just can't go into the classroom and teach content. You're gonna have to advocate for your students eventually. It's inevitable. And um even though Lauren that you may not have thought that you were gonna win, you still fought. You didn't say, oh we're just gonna lose and I just I'm not gonna fight. You still fought. And because you fought because you was an advocate and because you were part of CTU, we won. The win that you Chuck and you have is a win for our students. Is a win for justice, and for people who are afraid to fight industry, like you said, and the rich. This is what can happen when you organize and stick together.
1: That's right. We win on multiple levels. So you know, we we win. Um, get it, you know, trying to fight against General Iron's bid to open up in in a predominantly African American community, where we've already got so many health issues, so much pollution, so many problems. And they had that report that it was um, what the African American community has an average life expectancy what thirty years difference depending on on what zip code you live in, yeah, something like that. And this is one of the main reasons is to this kind of environmental racism that's being you know pushed into the city for the profit of certain companies and and you know things like that. You know, you guys went to protest, and CPS decided instead of. Being like, hey, these are some teachers who are really standing up for their kids. They're showing the students how to really take civic responsibility. That wasn't really the way they handled it, was it? They decided they were going to try to move to terminate you two. It really seemed like that's where things were heading. Then the board turns around and says otherwise. Um, why do you think that was? And how, how did the, all this sort of transpire? Because it really did seem like you know everything we heard sounded like it was really way further up the food chain and just the principal or the network that was really trying to push to get you out?
3: So I'll start by saying this. Um, This was a more than two-year fight. It stretches on uh, beyond that, but in terms of teachers and students and parents at Washington High School and the elementary school being involved um, more than two years. And Part of why I think many of us felt that we needed to play a role in this fight was that social justice is embedded in our schools like Mission, our school leaders encourage us to teach culturally relevant curriculum, to talk about issues that matter to our students. Um, And so we were supported by the community. I never thought that anything that I was doing would lead to me risking my career really until it became evident that that was happening. (laughs)
2: You know, Lauren was saying we thought we were going to lose, and Andrea, you you, were, you said something like we as teachers set the precedent, and I think most people thought we were going to lose, and I think as we know from history, when 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 there's a movement that that people think is going to lose, it's people kind of like leave it alone. But the fact that we actually we we won and and put a lot of people in in power, in particular Mayor Lightfoot. Um, put her in some really tough positions, that's when someone had to pay. Of all the people that were involved, we were potentially the most vulnerable as being employees of the Chicago Board of Education. It was yet again another fight that I think the powers that be thought this is going to be easy. They're non-tenured teachers. Um, They don't have much of a chance here. Um, And I don't think they foresaw the, the pushback that they were going to get from from the CTU and from the Southeast Side community.
0: Right. So according to CPS, what ethical behavior did you violate?
3: So I think Chuck makes a makes an important point that like the backlash actually happened um after the historic victory. Um, and so this was like, yeah, this was absolutely backlash. Um, seemingly coming from the mayor's office, because it did not come from, you know, it wasn't our principal, it wasn't a parent that was unhappy, like we had overwhelming support uh, it, within our school community. So it was coming from the top. Um, I mean, the accusations were, some of them were just straight up inaccurate, like, we were accused of basically telling students that there would be incentives for like taking a particular stance. Um, Myself and many teachers in the school, I mean, more than 10 teachers in the school did tell students, hey, you should be aware of this issue. These are ways you can get involved. These are events, including protests. So that was something that was being promoted But students were not being, like, rewarded for having a particular opinion on the issue. They were being encouraged to get involved in whatever way made sense to them.
0: Which, again, is creating a culturally responsive classroom, not just a culturally responsive classroom, but a culturally responsive school-wide climate. So I'm still trying to wait on what ethical laws were broken.
3: I mean they they tried to say that we've violated parts of the field trip policy in two ways. So they tried to say that us telling students about events that they could go to outside of school was like us actually planning a secret field trip when that was not the case like me telling students hey there's an event or hey there's a protest was not me secretly trying to plan a school event.
1: That was me
3: connecting what we were learning to events happening in the community, in the city. There was another uh, event. Um, So some of our students uh, were invited to speak at an environmental justice conference at MIT, uh, which was a, a pretty amazing opportunity for all the people involved. And then CPS came after us basically saying that in like communicating to MIT about this event we were violating CPS field trip policy that was not the case
1: yeah you know it's it's really weird cuz um when i was in the classroom one of the classes i taught was civics and as part of the civics curriculum this kind of social activism is actually one of the pillars of the curriculum that they designed specifically for this and they talk about protests and things like this you know some of the uh, assignments that are recommended in there are talking about all these different types of protests, whether it's around civil rights, whether it's about disability access, all different types of things, including environmental justice, is part of the curriculum, actually. And now they're telling you that by promoting their own curriculum, you're in violation of their policy, which is so much double speak, backtalk, craziness that it's hard to really keep track of this about They tell you out of one part of their mouth that this is what they want done. And then when you actually do it, they're like, oh, we didn't expect anybody to do that. So now you're in trouble.
2: You're you're right on that point. It's like they didn't expect something like this to happen. I I think we're all aware of like, you know, buzzwords and it, it all sounds good. And I think in many people's minds, what an action project looks like is someone maybe students having a recycling drive um, or students writing letters and you know both Lauren and I were actually involved in a summer project that was hosted by the social science and civic engagement department uh, where we developed uh, what's called an inquiry to action project Um, and and we were we were paid to be in this training we developed a curriculum that explicitly said, we are going to be addressing this issue of general iron. That was in there. And we continually pointed to that during our process of uh, CPS interrogating us. Um, but what ended up happening with that is, you know, now CPS is kind of backpedaling on all that. They're realizing what can potentially happen if they use these words and people actually take them seriously about these words. And now they're kind of restructuring this whole social science and civic engagement department, and they're restructuring how they do these inquiry to action frameworks. So I think back to Andrea's point, like we set the precedent. Um, we took something that that CPS said they want to do, and, and we pushed, it seems like we pushed the limits of it. And then they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And now they're kind of going back to say, like to put some boundaries
3: around it. And if I can just add, I mean... I think a lot of times people in Chicago, we think we live in this progressive bubble. And in some ways there there is some truth to that. But in more than 30 states, we've had these laws passed banning like the teaching of what's being called critical race theory, racism being embedded in the structures of the United States. It was very unbelievable that this was happening to us um, and this was happening in Chicago um, but when we kind of widen the scope to look at the context, this type of thing is happening. teachers are being targeted around the country. Um, one of the things that was really positive that wound up coming out of us obviously not being fired was that, you know, board president Miguel Del Valle did say, hey, as a board, we support culturally responsive pedagogy. Like, this yeah. is what we we want. And I think that's, that's why we have to pause and kind of ask, well, why did they try to fire us then? See, I don't think this was even coming from CPS. This is an example, one, one of the many examples of what can happen when you don't have a democratically elected school board.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: No, it's a great point. You know, I work at the, in the field staff at CTU When we heard that everybody's like, what? Like, how, like, we were shocked. Like, We were so excited. We were, you, I wish you could have seen it when we heard it. We're all like cheering. It's like, you know, we won the Super Bowl kind <laughs> of thing. Right. I was like, yeah. I mean, it was so bizarre. And it's sad that it's bizarre for CPS to do the right thing. I don't know. It just, it's just so unbelievable to me that we had to go that far to win something that is that basic. Even if it wasn't part of CPS's curriculum, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But the fact that, you know, I've been in these PDs where they train you how to do this. They actually contracted a bunch of us to write curriculum for them about socially responsive curriculum. They would have kids from Good Kids Mad City come in and talk about how kids can get involved in that. And as soon as we do it in a, in a big way and shut down this major company, oh, no, oh, well, you cost us money. Well, oh, that, that's crazy. We can't do that. It's nuts. It is super nuts to me.
2: Yeah. And this is a kind of a side note. You made me think of it. I'm stealing this. This is Lauren's. So I'm sorry. I'm going to take it from Lauren. Um, I, I, I think this is a great point that Lauren has made a couple times is like any of us who, who have worked with teenagers or have teenagers of our own at home, it's very difficult to get them to go out on a cold, rainy day and stand in the street for hours at a rally or a protest. Like, you can't you can't force them. There's no amount of extra credit that's going to get them to do that. If they are there, it's because they want to be there. We, we can't force that on anyone.
3: This idea that left-wing teachers are brainwashing students and teaching, uh, indoctrinating students with critical race theory is, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very insidious. And I'm proud to teach in Chicago and in Illinois, where we actually have like requirements to teach LGBTQ history and issues in our classroom, to teach Asian American history um, at the same time while other states are like rolling back progressive curriculum and like banning anti racist curriculum. But yeah, for those of us who have been in the classroom, this idea. I mean, we can't even get students to put their phones away a good percentage (laughs) of the time, much less uh, get them to agree with what adults think.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that, like, if I could have brainwashed my kids into doing something, it would have been to be quiet while I was explaining the lesson.
0: I couldn't (laughs) even get
1: them to do that. Yeah, come on now. What are you talking about?
0: So what's next uh, for the fight to protect educators from retaliation now that you've all been baptized in CPS's uh,
3: system, what's next for the fight for environmental justice as well? Well, I know that one of the exciting things that has come out of this victory is that, you know, those of us that were a part of this campaign, as excited as we were to win this kind of defensive victory, many demands came out of this fight for, um, you know, things that we want. Like we stopped a bad thing from happening, but that's not enough. Like what would it actually mean to heal from the harm of historic environmental racism in the Southeast side and other environmental justice communities? Um, So for those of us who are teachers and and CPS students, um, one of the key demands is to have building renovations or in our case at Washington high school, we need a new building. We're at 118% capacity. You know, we have students that actually have panic attacks because the hallways are so crowded. Like that's an accommodation that students actually have to advocate for themselves to leave class five minutes early or arrive to class five minutes late to um, miss the chaos in the halls because we're so overcrowded. Um, And our building does also have documented lead and asbestos in it. So for all those reasons, we're fighting for a new school building. The elementary school next door to us, Washington Elementary, also needs a new building. That's the major focus for us at this moment is the new schools. But, you know, I think as we're finding this demand for new school buildings is kind of opening a big can of worms of like, all of the ways in which CPS is not equitable, because as damaged as our school building is, um, we are not close to being like the worst, like having the worst facilities in CPS. And CPS has no plan for identifying what school buildings need repairs and renovations. Um, you know, on a case by case basis, there is no plan. So we have to advocate to make sure that there is an equitable plan to make sure that communities like the southeast side. Are some of the first schools to be replaced and renovated?
2: If I can just add something there about uh, it, that's a, you were asking like you know how do we how do we protect educators from retaliation? I don't know. I think that's that that seems to me like it's a very case by case uh, situation. And um, where we were very fortunate was the fact that we had such strong community support. And to me, that seems pretty crucial. Like all along from the beginning. I'll speak for myself, I became involved because it was a community issue. Because of my involvement, my job got on the line, but then the community that we had been involved in came out and and supported us. Um, so like any anything that that goes this far really, it's it's important to be doing it in in community. Like the moment when we were standing outside of uh, CPS headquarters waiting to hear the decision from the Board of Education, was not the, the most difficult, uh, most stressful time of this whole ordeal. The worst was when I got a letter from CPS. I was alone. I had no idea if anyone else was involved, but they told me that I was under investigation and I could get fired and the, I'll hear from them. That, that was the worst right there because I was alone in that moment. By the end, when we were all there waiting, like we had community and I felt like no matter what the outcome is, like we're going to be fine.
3: Yeah, if I could add to that, that is the key issue here is the community support that we had because, you know, CTU fought hard for us and defended us. Like, I felt like we got the highest quality of defense from our union um, and they were going to fire us anyway, frankly. So to backtrack a little bit, like, I was a college student in 2012, so I was not a teacher um, during the historic 2012 strike, but I was a young person in Chicago that was starting to get involved in activism and witnessing the power of teachers and like the power that teachers had when they stood side by side with parents, basically demanding that our students' learning conditions are our working conditions. If I had not had the experience of, like, learning from the 2012 strike, it would not necessarily have occurred to me and others in the community that, like, there was an opportunity to build solidarity with the people in the school and the people in the surrounding community when it came to General Iron. And You know, that was how we won. It was not by electing an older person who had a history of being progressive on EJ issues. That didn't work. It was not by petitioning or going and attending, you know, the city's formal engagement process. Like, that didn't work um people had to get in the streets um when people started protesting when young people came to the front in those protests and led their own protest outside George Washington High School i think that was definitely a turning point when people were like wow this is actually affecting like young people this is affecting student athletes ability to like run and and participate in soccer practice this was for me an extension of like what well, I learned about social justice unionism in 2012 um, from CGU members, um, which I'm forever thankful for, um, this was just an extension of that idea that like, in an environmental justice community, clean air and clean water are part of my students' learning conditions. If students are having asthma attacks and missing school, I literally cannot do the job I was hired for. And so that's how we won. And ultimately, that's how we saved our jobs as well, because people in the community rallied to our defense and it was extremely humbling. Um, Yeah, it was a very powerful experience.
0: Well, thank you all so much. I will say this interview was a very powerful experience for myself. (laughs) And I hope that what your testimony, um, Lauren and Chuck, will just uh, encourage our members to continue to advocate for their students and to help our students advocate for themselves. That's essentially what you all are doing. And to also help community members advocate for themselves. A lot of people don't know how to advocate. They don't know the first step. And so this is why community schools are important. It's important to have educators like you in the building who go to work every day and have your students and their families best interests at heart. This is what CTU looks like in action. This is what we produce. And I just, I am so in awe of your efforts, your strength, your motivation to continue to continue to move forward. I know that your students are really happy to be in your hands. And I know they learn so much. So thank you for just taking time out today to talk to our listeners and to talk to them about how to advocate. And even when you are threatened with retaliation from the boss, that you're going to stand for what is right and you can never go wrong doing what is right. So kudos to you, and we salute you for all your efforts.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate that.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thanks for listening to another episode of CTU Speaks Justice for All with Andrea and myself talking about how we can protect our communities, our students, and ourselves when we fight for
0: what is right. Oh, I like that rhyme.
1: So if members want to get in contact with us, Andrea, how can they get us?
0: Good question. They can always reach us at our phone number, which is 312-467-8888. Again, 312 312- 467 467 eight, 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 eight. So if you have a great podcast idea, you have a great story, something that needs to be publicized and for our listeners to hear, don't hesitate to call us. If you also have compliments, uh, questions, comments, concerns, and even complaints about Jim, you can call oh. us at that number. Another way to reach us is by our email. You can reach us at ctuspeaks.com at ctulocal1.org again speaks at ctulocal1.org
1: we've had actually several listeners write in about episodes they would like to hear and they will be hearing those relatively soon our next couple episodes are going to be coming up from members who had suggested different ideas for us
0: And don't forget to visit just CTU's website at ctulocal1.org so you can stay abreast of all the latest news. And if you want to get involved, we have many committees to be involved in. The Communications Public Relations Committee is one of them in which this podcast has stemmed from. So please, if you want to get involved, you can. All right. So thank you again for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks justice for all. We'll catch you again. And remember, we are CTU where we only speak what matters. See you next time.
1: Bye.